You're listening to Australia's Tax News Podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 32 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson. Whether an instrument is debt or equity for income tax purposes can be difficult to work out. To make this easy for us, Scott Triet, a partner at Pitcher Partners in Sydney, will walk us through Division 974 that governs this classification of debt and equity. My first question to Scott is, why does it matter whether something is debt or equity for income tax purposes? Here's Scott's answer. The issue with the debt equity rules is really because if something is classed as equity and is treated as equity for tax purposes, any return that you pay in relation to that instrument is automatically non-deductible. The other consequence is if you've, if you've got something which is classed as equity, then you fall within the franking benchmark rules. And if you're already franking returns on other instruments, then you would also have to frank returns on this instrument, which means that if you haven't, you could fall foul of the benchmark rules, which means you can get hit with penalties you didn't realise, yeah, the under-franking penalties, etc., that you didn't realise that you might have otherwise been able to get away from if, if you had properly planned your franking for the year. So so it is a it is a trap if something's classed as equity, that it's, yes, non-deductible, but frankable, but that, that risk there. But the other side is if it's debt, it gives the eligibility for deductibility. It doesn't mean that it is automatically deductible. It just puts it in the category that, yes, it's a debt instrument, therefore you've got to go back to the use test. It is, it is if it's used for income-producing purposes, then yes, you're going to be able to get a deduction to that extent, but it doesn't mean that just because it's debt, it's automatically deductible. The other thing to realise too, which people often fear or forget, is that it can be a nothing. So you might not be either debt nor equity. Is that possible? I didn't... Yeah, there are times, there are times, limited times, that you can fall out of both rules, um, just because of how precise, uh, I guess, the, the the terms of what is an equity instrument is, because that, that does require you to be registered in the book of members, say, if it's a company. So if you're not, you're not actually equity. Therefore, if you don't pass the debt test in relation to that instrument as well, you're neither debt nor equity. And hence, as a consequence of that, you've still got to go back to general principles. It doesn't mean it's not deductible. It just means you've fallen out of those provisions and you've got to go back to ordinary uses. Yes, common law. Correct, correct. Something can be equity for income tax purposes, even though it's not registered as shareholder capital. Correct. The the laws require you to look at equity first. I mean, yes, but there is a tiebreaker. And so practically speaking, you always start with debt. Yes. (laughs) Because... Why waste your time looking at equity if it's if if it passes debt? Because if it's if it's both, it's automatically treated as debt. Yeah. However, you're right. E- equity is it, it, it's very short 
test. So like it's it's probably the easier of the true tests to sort of look through and analyze. Um, but as as soon as you tick the boxes on on the specific requirements for company or for unit trust, then you are automatically an equity instrument. And and no, it doesn't mean that it is a, a share, but it, it it is usually similar to or contains items that are contingent on profits, etc., which make it akin to being as if capital. It, all as if it was a share. Yeah. <laughs> right? Income tax and corporation law have nothing to do with each other in this matter. Whether corporation law says it's equity or not, it doesn't matter. Income tax comes with their own set of rules. Yeah, yeah, you've heard me lecture before. You know, you know my views on that. Tax tax law lives in the cloud. Tax tax law always superimposes a set of its own rules over and above whatever's happening in the real world. So in the in the legal slash real world, we'll create instruments that do what we want from a legal perspective. However, the tax laws sit over the top of that and will say, is that the outcome we want for tax? And if it's not, then it imposes its own view and treatment over the top. And that's exactly what these provisions are set and designed to do. Because in the past, people would come up with all these weird and wonderful structures to have weird and wonderful outcomes. And hence, the need to put these these debt equity provisions over the top. Hence the use of words which we're starting to see throughout much of tax law, so new law that's coming in, where it talks of, the in this case, the effectively non-contingent obligation, right? So there's a number of words in there even that are legal words. Obligation, well, that's a legal requirement. That comes back to the documents. Non-contingent, well, that's a legal term, right? That comes back to your documents. Is there a real contingency around an obligation that you've got? But they've inserted the word effectively in the debt test when we, when we, when we get to it. And that word changes everything. Because it, it changes, makes it very subjective now. It makes it absolutely subjective. What is the real substance of what you've got there? Is it that you are trying to do something, whereas at law it's doing something else? Because effectively you never meant to repay it. And and that that really brings it down to a subjective decision around what's in front of you right now. How are you behaving and and all of those terms are influencing the outcome for tax. I wasn't sure whether equity that turns out to be equity thanks to the equity test is then frankable. And the answer is yes, it yes. is frankable. But it might actually not be a good thing that it's frankable because correct. if it hits the correct. So benchmark what, rule, then correct. So, so the risk the risk there is so uh, let me get the terminologies right. If you have something that is not a share and has become equity for tax purposes, you have something that is called non-share equity, right? And so what can happen, and this is the trick for young players, as, as I say, is if you are accounting for it as debt in your accounts, let's say you're not audited, let's say you don't have to follow accounting principles, etc., and you're putting it through your P&L, as if it were interest and you didn't realise that it was... Non-share equity. A non-share equity instrument and you had to otherwise frank it. You you haven't. And, and yes, you do see it. People, I, I, I saw it in an acquisition 
where we were reviewing something, we're looking at the terms of the instrument, well, that's that's equity for tax purposes, so therefore we, we've stripped it out in our calculations, et cetera, gone back and looked at it and gone, well, actually, guys, your franking account's not what it is because you never franked. You should have franked. And and it becomes a shock to them because they didn't realise those issues. Mistake. It's an expensive mistake and it's a, it's a innocent mistake. Is it possible to ask the commissioner for... For forgiveness? Oh, you can always ask for forgiveness, absolutely. Um, and, and there is a, there is a provision in there that, um, gives the commissioner a discretion at times. And it was an innocent, innocent mistake, I think. Correct. Correct. But you've got to be able to indicate that or prove that. That's fine. But getting there in the first instance and being able to ask for that forgiveness, like yeah, nine yeah. times out of ten, you're probably okay to get it. Yeah. Did you get it in this case? That particular case, yes, we did. Ah, great. Yeah. Uh, but again, we had to go through an evidence why we made the mistake. And that's not always a, a, a good thing to, you know, the other advisors are, are putting their reputation on the line because of it. The client's putting their reputation on the line because of it. And the tax office then does ask questions. Well, Do you know what you're doing? Yeah, mm. absolutely. Absolutely. When you're private company, you actually can prepare franking statements four months, later. Four months after, so until exactly. the end of October. Which means you can you do fix have some time to fix, to fix it. it. But it's in not long. our experience, clients sit back and go, I don't have to lodge my returns until March, April. And, and then so it's they too late. not to do it. And by that stage, you're too late. When it's a family business and the shareholder and the company know each other well. Technically, once you've gone past October, it's too late. The other thing that people might not realise is that there are flow-through provisions on these. So even though you might look at an instrument, say, here in Australia, let's say you've got a parent overseas. The parent has borrowed money from a foreign source. That's then been passed down through a chain of entities and then lent to the Australian entity. You test that Australian instrument, right? And, and you look at it and go, right, this is, this is debt from an Australian tax perspective. However, there's another provision in there, uh, 97480, which requires a look through. It requires you to go up the chain. And if it's in a series of instruments, which is for the purposes of, of facilitating this, then you've got to also look at the instrument there. So if it was equity, say, that was lent from parent entity to foreign sub and then debt from foreign sub to Australian sub, it, that even though you pass the debt test in the first instance, if having regard to the circumstances that exist, it would be, say, reasonable to conclude that it should otherwise be equity, it's equity because of the top instrument. So you've got to be careful if there's a, a series of entities in play. International is probably the most common, but it can also happen domestically. If you've gone from entity to entity with the cash and it's changed its character through that flow, yeah, you could also have a problem within those provisions. Um, and I'm seeing that with a client at the moment. It's questions being posed by the tax office and it, it's a real issue. And, and whilst... In this case, the other advisor had advised, yes, this is debt, therefore it's deductible. The client's treated as deductible 
year on year on year, the tax office is now saying, yeah, but maybe it's not. This has the smell of equity because of what's happened above the line and this section gives the ability to knock it out. Is think capitalization also an issue in this area that a company treats it as equity, gets around thin capitalization, but then actually turns out to be debt and thin cap is an issue? I mean, that could that could apply, yes. But do you have, it's not as common. No, I mean, that, that would be a consequence of a... A certain treatment one way or the other. Um, but I, I think uh, the bigger issue is where you're treating it as something, these items are falling into that thing, capitalisation calculation. Absolutely. The, these provisions do influence other provisions like that. But the most common point of contention is that the taxpayer wants to treat it as debt, yes. hence gets a, a deduction for it. Gets a deduction. And the ATO argues that it is equity. That's the usual point of Correct. contention. Correct. Mm. And, and, and that's where I think people um, need to be cautious of the instruments that they're putting in place. Um, there are various rulings which are out there these days around what is an effectively non-contingent obligation, what are issues around economic compulsion. Yes. Uh, and, and, and where that term effectively starts really going into the subjective nature of the instrument itself. Um, I mean, if you if you were to look at the detail of the debt test, right, do I have a financing arrangement? Well, it's either yes or no. Are there financial benefits that you've received and are there financial benefits you've got to pay? The yes or no. Yeah. Right? All of, all of the debt test elements are yes or no, other than that item of... Effective. Effectively non-contingent obligation, okay? And I, I think it, it is critical, as I, I was talking about before, to break that into its component parts. So you've got, so, so you say effectively non-contingent obligation. So the first element is, do you have an obligation? Under the instruments, is there an obligation to provide a financial benefit? Because if there's no obligation, there's no debt. You're not. You're just not in there, all right? Then you've got to look at the the terms of that obligation. Let's say it's redeemable preference share. It's redeemable in for ease of discussion, in nine years time, all right? Um, therefore, what what am I redeeming in? Is it it's got to be provided in shares or cash? Right or how how does it take place? So is is there a financial benefit that's going to be associated with that obligation? Right, and then is that obligation contingent on anything? So um, so again, with an RPS, there might be a return that's a, that's associated with the RPS, and this is where people often get tripped up. These particular instruments. So an RPS could be that it's five um, percent annually. Oh, okay, 5% annual. But if you don't have the profits, you don't have to pay. So therefore, there's a contingency on the obligation. Hence, you don't have an effectively non-contingent obligation to look at. I read somewhere that the need to service a redeemable preference share out of profit or out of the issue of new capital, that that would not affect the um, Correct. So, so that, that would be more on its face value as opposed to 
versus oh, I see the interest. Return. Okay. So that's so where it, you've got to break down. So so any any part of an instrument, you're not looking at the instrument as a whole. You break so it up between you, face value and interest. Well, you break it down to each and every single obligation that may or may not be otherwise attached to this instrument. So it could be the redeeming of it. It could be returns on it. It could be anything that's that's ever possibly payable, contingent or otherwise, is, is you've got to look at. And, and, and those come into all the possible things that you can then bring into account. So even though, let's say, let, let's take, a, take an extreme, I might have a $1 or $100 redeem, redeemable preference shares. Let's call them redeemable convertible shares. If the redemption is by way of payable in shares, well, that's not a financial benefit because it's payable in shares and the instrument, in effect, continues. Yes, and a share issue of a share never counts as a financial benefit. Correct. So, therefore, you might sit back and go, oh, I've already failed the, the equity test. Well, maybe not. What if on that instrument I've got to You mean to the debt test? I already oh, sorry, failed the, the debt, debt test. Yeah. What if on that, on that instrument I'm, I'm actually paying a 10% return, right? And depending on the, the life of that instrument, right, then I'm already starting to, to get up to that amount. If that 10% is, say, a cumulative amount instead of year on year. So if I take out that contingency, it can become effectively non-contingent. Right? By, by merely saying, because well, of the interest. If, if on year one you don't have the profits, then it's payable year two. If you don't have it year two, then it, therefore if you've, at the end of the day, if you don't have it, it's still payable on the date of redemption. Well, that's effectively non-contingent. Okay, so you've got to look at the terms of the instrument. It may or may not be cumulative. And if it's not, then you, you'll disregard it because there's no obligation because it would be otherwise contingent on profit. If it is cumulative, then it isn't contingent because at the time of redemption, you've got to pay it. So therefore, you would count it. And then that starts to get you up to your financial benefits received in terms of being at least equal to. And if there's other payments you've got to make under the instrument as well, that could tip you over the edge. And then all of a sudden, whilst the conversion of the face value is into shares and you disregard it, the other obligations may tip you over the edge to pass the debt test. So it, it is important to, to break it down into each and every component part. So the first requirement under the debt test is that there is a scheme. The scheme, a scheme is kind of like part variety for, as well. I thought for a second you said scam. Scam. <laughs> Uh, that would knock everything out. Um, uh, if 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 it's a scheme, it, it's it's anything. Uh, a, a scheme is any form of scheme arrangement undertaking, same as same as part for a. So That's, it's so very it's really, very broad. You've you've had a thought. Yeah. That's a scheme. Yeah. So it's not really a condition because everything is basically a scheme, apart from maybe Auntie Daisy gave little Peter hundred dollars. Apart from scenarios like this. Um, but even that, I, I sort of sit down and say, well, that's a scheme. Why did she give the $100? She thought about it. 
yeah. So, like, I, I, I take the point. You're you're automatically falling into it, but it's, if it's a gift, you've got none of the later criteria, so therefore you're not going to come into this, right? So I, I always think that the first few steps of the debt test are kind of, like, they're there. Yes, you've got to tick the boxes. You always have to tick the boxes, but you've never a seen lot this. of them, yeah. you're going to satisfy it. I've never come across an example where I've failed any of the first steps because is there a scheme? Tick. Is there a financing arrangement? Well, what's that? Well, financing arrangement is that you're you're getting the money for the purposes of putting it towards your business in some form. Well, why did you get the money in the first place? You're obviously intending to finance something or refinance something. So therefore, in my view, is you're more likely than not to always satisfy those requirements. Um, so I always I do struggle to to understand that level of detail sometimes in in terms of why I ask the question. But so why did the uh, legislator put this financing arrangement condition into the debt test? But it's also in the equity test. Everywhere pops up this requirement that it has to be a financing arrangement. And then there are exclusions that some things are not a financing arrangement. I think there's a list of, you know, leasing or higher purchase arrangements. You know, there's a list of things that are not financing arrangements. Why all this discussion about financing arrangements? It just confuses, at least confuses me. I, I think it's to stop the artificial creation of instruments. It's to stop scenarios where there's paper trails and all of a sudden there's a debt instrument which is created. I see, a no flow of cash. No flow of cash or something like that. I, I could, that's, that's my view on it. Maybe I'm, I, I could absolutely be wrong, but I, I just, I can only see these steps as being there to stop a scam, to stop, you know, a sham, I should say, or, or, or items which are not, truly legitimately there for the purpose of what you're saying it was there for. It's it's to come back to that substance over the form approach again to ensure that things are moving the way that you're saying it is. Yeah. So in practice, financing arrangement, yes or no, never seems to be an issue. It tends to with my clients. Be, yeah. It with my clients, always. it's never really been an issue. Mm. Uh, it's not to say that there's yes, items out there where people are doing things which wouldn't make that come into question moving on from there it's it's whether or not you then you being the taxpayer have received a financial benefit right well if it's a financing arrangement you're you're obviously aiming to get something of value for the purposes of funding your business right you should have received a financial benefit then it's do you have an obligation to provide a financial benefit to basically pay it back pay it back Hmm. Why? Because a debt is that, isn't it? You've borrowed something under a contract to repay it. That's debt in substance. So what they're trying to do is use all these terms, whilst there's different steps, they're trying to bring all these terms back to say, in substance, these are the items that are often associated with debt. So on your document or in your behaviour, do you in substance have that? And if yes, then you're looking like you're a debt instrument. And that's really what they're trying to do is is to bring it back to what does it smell like? Does it smell like that? Um, And and then you get into this um, effectively non-contingent around these uh, obligations to 
provide back those financial benefits, right? So you might have received a financial benefit, but is your obligation effectively non-contingent in order to repay it? So, um, so if you receive a share, right? Well, you only have to give back the amount that you got if you've still got it at the end of the day. It's contingent. It's contingent on performance. It's contingent on you actually doing something at the end of the day. It's 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 equity, yeah. Because Whereas, if the company goes under, correct. the shareholder doesn't get anything back. That, that's right. Whereas if you're the bank, you've lent money. You don't want that repayment to be contingent on anything. So so these terms are really trying to say, in a true commercial arrangement, you wouldn't have put a contingency on things to get repaid if it was debt. So. You know, whilst if you go under, you still might not get the cash, you're, you're, you're ranking above everyone else. So, so you smell more like debt. But the, the requirement is, is that you, the amount you're required to pay back is at least equal to the amount that you've received, right? Obviously, if you borrowed a hundred bucks, the bank's not going to allow you to repay 90 bucks and walk away with it. So if you borrow a hundred bucks, you've at least got to pay back at least $100, if not more. So that's basically the next condition. Correct. The third condition was effectively non-contingent obligation. The fourth condition is that what it's you have to pay back has to be at least, least equal, equal to what you what you received. That's correct. And that then comes down to a valuation test. So if, it's, if, it, if the instrument is repayable or that obligation exists within a 10-year period, it's face value. Effectively, it's it's done as a, to keep the tax laws easier to comply with, to to not impose uh, overly burdensome requirements of the act for compliance with the law. Okay, so they 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 chose a ten year period to say, look, if it's within ten years, let's take its face value. If it's more than ten years, you've got to do the NPV calculation. So you got to you do have to take a net present value of that instrument. And I guess then the complexity comes into how long is that instrument, what is the discount that I apply to it, et cetera, to be able to bring it back to a net present value to determine whether the total sum of the effectively non-contingent obligations that I have is at least equal to the amount that I received under the instrument up front. Does it seem that most instruments you have been looking at were below 10 years? More often than not, they'll be less than 10 years and people need to be careful around the wording of documents. I've seen people trip up where they've put it as being 10 years, but they've put it as 10 years after certain dates and therefore they've pushed out after 10 years post the original date and hence you fall back into net present value calculations. A lot of instruments I see will either be nine years, nine years, 11 months, just to keep it safe, um, and, is, and that and this that test would be would be one of the reasons that it's just under ten years. The sole reason people are doing it is that because mm. um, it keeps it simpler. It keeps it simple. It reduces it. Now that being said, I would have an issue if someone came to me and said, "I'm borrowing for nine years or nine years, eleven months." And then they refinance that and do another nine years, 11 months with an identical instrument. That might start to call into question other sections of the Act, for example, Part 4A, as to why did you do that? 
did you do that just so that you would pass the debt test so that then you could do the debt test again so that you knew you were going to borrow for 20 years but you've done it in two lots. To avoid the discounting. Yeah, no, I would be very cautious around that. Whilst, you know, there's nothing overly specific, it, I would just say, oh, it doesn't smell right. Um, but if it's if it's truly a 10-year borrowing, no issue. Oh, I see. So it's, as long as it's 10 years and not one second longer, you're oh, it's still... It's going to be less, less than It has to be less, than, less 10 than 10 years. Then the moment you hit 10 years, you need to do the net present value calculation. Correct. Hence the nine-year and 11 months. Correct. Mm. Correct. Okay, so that was the that's the fourth step mm -hmm. to make sure that what you pay back is at least equal or more to what you received. And coming back to the redeemable preference share that you spoke about before, we then have to look at if it relates to an issue of shares that doesn't count as a financial benefit. So then we have to look at the interest and see whether that Correct. You, you break it down to do all the obligations and you've got to analyse whether those obligations are indeed financial benefits. Yeah. Provision of cash, those type of items, financial benefits. Provision of shares is not. Yeah. And if in a redeemable preference shares, if the payment of interest is contingent on being paid out of profit, that destroys the effective non-contingent obligation. You might, yeah, you might not have an effectively non-contingent obligation around that return. With respect to the interest. With respect to the interest, you just you you just need to look at the terms. If there's some cumulative effect of it, which then means on redemption, yes, it is paid. Then it could be effectively non-contingent. Okay, but if with respect to the face value, it says it can only be paid out of profits or the issue of new capital, then that doesn't destroy the effective no. non-contingent obligation with respect to the face value. Correct. So let's let's say it was a nine-year instrument that was just, it had no specifics on it. It was just redeemable at the end of nine years. If, if that redemption is, is done out of a fresh issue of shares instead of giving them shares in consideration, right? If it's a fresh issue of shares which has raised the cash, you've been paid it out, there's nothing contingent about that. Even it, because the, the, the corporation's law basically says you've got the ability to redeem preference shares out of profits or a fresh issue of shares. And and so that's that's why it then brings it in and says, well, that's not really contingent because you've got multiple ways you because can raise you the cash. Get otherwise, something. you're definitely going to get something, okay. right? You're definitely getting something. Yeah. Ah, oh, okay. Hmm. I misunderstood that. Yeah. Now it makes sense yeah. why it why it's fine with respect to the face value. So when you're looking at the words within the law around the valuations and, and the the obligation to provide a financial benefit being at least equal to the amount that you've received, the use of the word substantially more likely than not comes down to the valuation of those instruments. So so what it's really saying is that, you know, I mean, valuations is subjective, right? It, it, it's you're applying a, a methodology to, to say that at less than 10 years you're taking face value, but more than 10 years you're taking a net present value. But adding all these numbers together, yeah, on balance it's substantially more likely than not that what you're going to pay is at least equal to. So it's really... 
the, the use of the words within the law there are really bringing it down to the fact that you, you are valuing something. And so long as based on those valuations, you're coming to a position, it's more likely than not, you're going to pay back the, at least the amount that you've received. You are within that debt test. Hmm. Are the valuations subjective? I would have thought if the um, period is less than 10 years, I would have thought the method is quite... The method set out by the law in terms of if it's less than 10 years, you are taking face value. But I, look, if you were to turn to a valuer and say, I've got an instrument that's nine years, they're going to have a different opinion on that. So so there is, a, I'd say, a technical difference there. But yes, the law does prescribe that. But let's go more than 10 years. So let's pick on the words and go for a 15-year period, right? What's your discount rate? Yeah. The discount rate that you're using in that instrument is 75% of a benchmark rate. What's the benchmark rate? Well, the benchmark rate depends on what other instruments you've got on issue. Now, then you've got to make adjustments to it, et cetera. It really comes down to an analysis, et cetera, of those other instruments. Yeah, so it's more subjective. Absolutely. So once you're in there, it's it's up in the air. All right. Oh, it's not so much. Yes, it's a prescribed formula, but there's a number of factors which might influence the outcome. So, so long as it's substantially more likely than not, it gives that flexibility within the law that that enables you to pass the test instead of having to prove categorically that it will be such. So through that, we've, we've spoken about all the all those tests there, and and I guess it's like everything in income tax. You've got to make sure you've ticked all the boxes. If you've ticked all those boxes, you will be a debt instrument. If you are a debt instrument, I'd say don't even bother looking at the equity test because the tiebreaker, as we said before, will push you back to being a debt instrument. So if you've passed debt, you will be debt, and and. If you haven't passed debt because you've failed one of those boxes, then you've got to start to analyse, well, am I actually an equity instrument? And moving to that test or those tests under the equity test as to do I tick the boxes from the fact of being an equity instrument? The easiest one being you're a shareholder. Um, as soon as you're a shareholder or a unit holder or in the register of members, you pass the equity test because it's assumed that all the other financing arrangements, etc., are otherwise satisfied. If you don't, then you've got to look at the terms of the instrument. What are, are the returns in relation to the financing arrangement, etc., that, that's in place? So, so again, you've still got to have a financing arrangement. There's still got to be financial benefits, but the returns are contingent. You are effectively ranked like a shareholder. It smells like you're a shareholder. Your your returns are contingent on profit. Your payout is contingent, etc. So you may just, you just don't rank like you would if you're a, a debt instrument. It's probably the easiest way to, to explain it. It's, it's not as structured around it, but effectively, if anything is contingent in there, you're probably falling into the equity test as well. Why did the uh, legislator give the tiebreaker rule? The tiebreaker rule basically gives a nice present to the taxpayer because as soon as they tick that, even if they uh, would also pass the equity test, they get their debt. 
Yeah, look, that's that's a view. That's a, a, a gift. Advisors want the best outcome for their clients. The tax office wants the right administration of the law, and that is within the realms of the intention of the law. So to put yeah the hat on of the legislature, why did I write the law in that way? Well, if you didn't have a tiebreaker, you're in trouble. You've got to you've 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 got to have a tiebreaker. Um, because if you if you by by having true tests, if if the law raised conflict, you automatically have an issue. I and it's a personal opinion. Um, it's certainly not something that I've I've, I've garnished from the the EEM. It's been a, a long time since I've read the EEM on this. I believe that that it tends towards the debt test because it contains elements. If you if you are satisfying the debt test, then you have all these obligations. The debt test isn't. If you're an equity instrument and passing the debt test, you're basically there. You are basically there. You you are in effect like a loan because the right? debt test is so tough. It's a lot tougher than the equity Correct. test. So if you Correct. pass this tough test, then you made it. That's right. Yeah, and and so you must have a large portion of financial benefits that you're providing under these obligations, which meet the debt test. And and so to be able to fall in that predominantly that instrument is debt. So let's lean that way because the loss or potential loss to the revenue by pushing it from equity to debt is probably not so bad. Most instruments that pass the debt test would really be debt. Yeah, that's right. Mm. That's right. I guess the last thing to mention is is that around at core loans. Um, and these are predominantly in private groups where those that uh, are close to their companies treat the company and themselves, for want of a better terminology, as one and the same. We all know that it happens. Family business. Family businesses, right? And family businesses that have grown, right? So in essence, um, if, if, if you've got these loans, which you intend to have repaid to yourself at some stage, if they sit there as an at-call loan, which if they're not documented, if they've got no terms to it, et cetera, so they the, are at-call. So the shareholder provides a loan to the company? Yes. So I might I might set up a company and I'll go, you know what, I need some startup money if I, if I had some money to start up a company. But anyway, <laughs> let's say I had a spare million dollars I wanted to throw into a company. Um, and and I, I tip that into a company. If I have not documented that, if I've if not put any terms around that, then that loans are cool. Yes, and hence not effectively none. You've got no, you've got no obligations. There's no obligations. You can't prove to me that there's an obligation. So therefore, you cannot be debt. So therefore, any returns are contingent, and you are likely to be equity. And so. Anything that's paid on those, any interest or anything, you're potentially dealing with a non-share equity instrument and and you've got to deal with franking and the, the aspects we spoke about before. So you do need to be careful. There are carve-outs for small businesses, right, and those businesses are those where I think it's your GST turnover is less than the $20 million threshold. And if you fit within that, then... 
you're carved out and you can still be treated as debt. But again, you've got to be cautious. You've got to be careful around the evidence, etc., around it. So yeah, that, that area is a trick for young players and you do see it, them sitting in books and, and accounts. It's less so these days. It was very prominent when the, the laws first came out and people seem to have got into the habit of documenting items uh, between the parties when monies go into into companies. But it does still arise and people do need to be cautious. I'll try to get my clients out of them. At at core lines. At core lines. Don't like them. Because there is the risk that one day turnover. I mean, if if you're not paying interest on them, it's not as big an issue. It becomes an issue when you're trying to return capital, etc. It, it, it can be an issue, so you've got more to think about. But if you're not going to pay interest, it's not so much an issue. But if it's truly at call, I try to make it really temporary, get it done, get it in and out in a couple of years and not worry about interest and those type of items. But if someone's thinking, ah, oh, right, I want to lend it in and then charge interest, that's when it becomes an issue. I prefer my clients not to be in that scenario. One thing that confused me for a while until I realised that it's exactly the opposite was this debt and equity issue and then Division 7A, and I kind of tried to work out how they they sit together. exactly. But they don't interact because they're exactly the opposite. This debt or equity issue is about the shareholder or somebody giving money to the company and the company then having a liability, whereas Division 7A is about the company having a receivable towards somebody else. Yes, and so they're correct. exactly at they the are, opposite. They are opposite, but I'd even I'd, I'd draw more polar points on it as well, is that so whilst, whilst the debt equity rules are looking at something which is lent to the company, it is substance over form. Division 7A is looking for something that's lent from the company to a shareholder, and it's more form over substance. And so if you look at some of the definitions within um, Division 7A, they're quite prescriptive around a loan, right? It's not a debt instrument, it's a loan, and a loan is a, is a defined term as being an ordinary loan, and then it, can, it does expand it, but it's looking at, I guess in the first instance, it is, it is more form over substance, and then I'll add a couple of more items in there depending on what you're actually doing. So you, it, it is it is very the polar opposites in, in terms of law. Does the choice of words matter? It talks about deep dividends or taking as a dividend or treat it like a dividend. Does it matter... I'm sure the lawyers would pick that one apart. And as I recall one of my mentors many, many moons ago uh, raised the difference between it. Deemed is, is something which is an automatic thing. If something is deemed to be a dividend, then it, it's, it's automatically going to be that. Taken to be a dividend, look, it, it's kind of one and the same in my views, but it, it tends to then say it's taken to be a dividend for the purposes of and 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 will define what, for what purposes it's being taken to be a dividend. Oh, okay. And and so it, it may limit the reasons or the circumstances in which it is taken to be a dividend. 
I know like if I go to share buybacks, it's taken to be a dividend instead of deemed to be a dividend, but it's taken to be a dividend for the purposes of the Act. So for all purposes, right? Division 7A, it's deemed to be a dividend. Liquidators' distributions are taken to be a dividend for certain purposes. The debt equity rules are something we come across all the time. It's something we're always talking to our clients about. We make sure that if there's expenses going through their accounts which purport to be interest, we're raising the questions with them. If they purport to pay dividends, we're raising the questions with them so that we make sure we do have the right treatment up front with them as opposed to trying to deal with it retrospectively because if you're trying to deal with it retrospectively it's often too late you may have already fallen foul of some under franking provision or something like that and that's not a good position to get into so they're critical it's critical to be talking to your clients constantly about them and being on top of any changes of their financing arrangements that that they're going through. we touched on the difference between the debt equity issue and Division 7A. Another difference between these two is the franking of dividends. When Division 974 classifies an instrument as equity and hence payments for this instrument as dividends, these dividends are frankable. So they must be franked according to the benchmark franking percentage or face a penalty under franking debit and Scott talks about that in the interview. Deemed dividends under Division 7A, on the other hand, are not frankable unless you get the uh, Commissioner's discretion, but let's put that aside for now. So Division 7A dividends are not frankable, while payments that turn out to be dividends under Division 974 are frankable and must be franked according to the benchmark franking percentage. In the next episode, episode 33, Bob Deutsch of the Tax Institute in Sydney We'll talk about some of the most urgent pain points in the Australian tech system. Until then, thank you for listening. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.